Welcome to the Army Podcast. I'm Joel Applebaum, the Chief Content Officer for Army and for Captive.com. And today, our guest, Matthew Queen of the Queen Law Firm, is a law firm providing captive insurance consulting services, is here to discuss why more captive insurance companies are generated in the hard market. And Matthew Queen operates a mid-sized single-parent captive and is the owner of the Queen Firm, which is the law firm that provides captive consulting services. He's started his career in the captive insurance industry in 2015 as a general counsel for a captive manager focusing on the long-term care industry. Mr. Queen has developed numerous captive programs, published dozens of articles, and produced the treaties, the modern captive insurance through the American Bar Association. So welcome, Matthew. Oh, thanks for having me. At Captive.com, we always try to keep our audience informed with unlimited free access to articles by leading journalists and experts like yourself to amplify their captive industry experience and give unparalleled insights on critical issues, events, news items. So, Matthew, we really appreciate you being here with us today. We kind of what sparked this, you know, it gets me stoked about talking about this as we saw a report from Marsh, which is this year's first quarter was a 22nd consecutive quarter with composite commercial increases in prices. And that's the longest run of increases since that report began in 2012. Some say price increases have peaked back in the fourth quarter of 2020 at 22%. You know, that's maybe according to that report. But, you know, there's still lots of changes and issues in the market. So, Hardening market could include, you know, obviously reduced capacity, rate increases, tightening terms and conditions. So, you know, captive insurance company growth has been correlated to the insurance rate increases and hard market conditions, right? It's it's really, a, I think, a challenging time. So, Matthew, what I'd like you to tell us a little bit about is your book on captives, the treaties you authored, and why more captive insurance companies are generated in the hard market. You know, why'd you write it? What's your, what was your inspiration? And, you know, fill us in. So it's a logical correlation to see an increase in captive insurance formation when the insurance rates are expensive. Most people who consider captives do so because they're having a problem with insurance. Other than people like us, most people look at insurance as akin to like employee benefits, the 401k plan is something that they just have to deal with. But there are a handful of industries where insurance is a meaningful part of the bottom line. Uh, commercial trucking, probably right at the top of the list, along with medical malpractice. Those are areas where captives have traditionally done very well, even in a broadly soft market. So when you see people starting to pay 20, 30, 40 percent more than they were in the previous year, the captive formation makes more sense because you can get out of the commercial rates and start to price on your own relative risk to the market. The problem that I have with that is it creates a little bit of a problem later on where the market will get unreasonably soft. And if you have rates that are now materially cheaper than the captive, you could end up in a situation where you're now having to write to unreasonably low rates simply because the CEO is saying, hey, I can get cheaper insurance somewhere else. So while we would expect to see more captive formation when insurance rates are really high, the trick is the education to remind that 
this is a risk financing tool to be stable over time. So when the insurance rates go up, captive's going to be plugging along. When insurance rates go down, captive's going to be plugging along. And so long as you're managing the claims well, as long as your risk management is good, people aren't getting injured, we're doing a good job, that means that the captive is going to be returning dividends back to the owner. So when the captive becomes a piggy bank, then you can escape the potential for the owner saying, oh, well, I can get slightly cheaper insurance by joining back into the commercial markets. That's a sensitive conversation that probably will not happen on the first day. Realistically, you need to close the deal. Captives are hard to sell. And then once they're sold, the analysis needs to move toward how do we continue to add value to the overall organization. Assume for the sake of argument, the CEO does not secretly really want to get into the insurance business. This is just a solution for him. So it's a very sophisticated and nuanced conversation because you do not want to sit there and come across as a you know captive raw, raw kind of guy. Clearly, if you could get 90% or 95% off of your commercial premium, well, clearly, yes, obviously, abandon the captive. So you have to be able to navigate those times where the first year claims made rate may be 5, 10, 15% cheaper because you jumped into a captive at the literal height of the market. So you would expect to see a lot of these people next year, 18 months from now, turn around and saying, but my broker said, well, yes, that's correct. Your broker's absolutely right. So let's talk about the retro. Let's talk about the lost portfolio transfer. Let's start looking at what the captive costs in the long run. So that's a, a a relatively easy conversation to have if you are managing the CEO well ahead of time. So after you've got the deal down and premiums going through the door, you need to start massaging the 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 CEO or whoever the decision maker is to say, look, I mean, I understand that things are calming down in the market. And the good news here is once you have and then talk with your actuary beforehand. Once we have two years of, of experience, we can we can totally depart from the commercial markets and I can get your premium down another somewhat percent, depending on how your claims manifest, blah, blah, blah. Ideally speaking, we're dealing with a rational actor here. If you have a rational actor, you should see an improvement on claims. Every single time I've seen a captive manifest, someone has paid more attention to claims because their money's on the line. So once we are no longer just praying for the insurance gods to cover everything, you do see more sophisticated insurance defense attorneys retained. You see a more aggressive posture in litigation. And there is a dampening effect on the value of a claim. And this is something that I do not have enough data to show with great specificity, but I can broadly testify that return or settlements for a captive are materially, materially lower than with commercial carriers. The reasons for that are, in my opinion, based off of perception. So if a plaintiff's attorney sees CNA or Ironshore or AIG or one of the large commercial carriers, an AMS rated carrier, they're going to just assume that they'll get paid the same way they do every single time. Once there's a weird demo tech or unrated insurance carrier there, many sophisticated plaintiff's attorneys will think twice about continuing on with litigation in the case. And a really good defense strategy here is to talk poor with the defense attorney. So if you have a demo tech rated captive or, or an unrated captive uh, writing something and you, and you find yourself in a claim, 
feel free to tell the defense attorney that, hey, man, you know, it's just ultimately the company's money. Don't feel compelled to let the plaintiff's attorney think that it's real insurance. Captive insurance does have a bit of a reputation, in particular because of the 31B song and dance. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with telling your insurance defense attorney to spread the word to the plaintiff's attorney that, hey, man, you'll be lucky to get anything from this thing. It's just a captive, after all. And that is an effective way of managing the claims so that when you do come around on renewal and the actuaries are saying, well, here's the rate, here's the ultimate loss ratio, you can be a little, you can be nuanced in saying, hey, the IBNR needs to come down. Here's the good reasons why. You need to be calculating the reserves uh, in, in a different manner so we can uh, make sure to open up some surplus, get a dividend return back to the CEO, and then voila. Now you're competing with an insurance broker over here who's promising 15% cheaper next year, but you just returned an $800,000 dividend back to the CEO. You look like a hero, even though the insurance market just got cheap. So what areas or lines of insurance does your practice focus on, and how does that involve captive insurance? You know, I, I really want to make sure, you know, I think people understand but I'm going to take away from what you just said is getting captives for the right reason, not necessarily for the ebbs and flows of the market, but for controlling, potentially controlling claim costs, getting the coverages you need. And so in respect to those pieces, Matthew, in what areas or lines of insurance is your practice focus and how does this involve captive insurance? I've spent more time in healthcare than any other area with regard to captive insurance. And I'd say the past eight years of my life have mostly been defined by the long-term care industry. And much like medical malpractice, we as an industry have a lot of plaintiff's attorneys who look at big, fat insurance limits. We are mandated by a variety of stakeholders to have one mil, three mil limits at a minimum. And you've got very frequently sympathetic plaintiffs with less than sympathetic institutions of nursing homes are understaffed uh, as an industry. It's just thing we have to deal with. And as a result, bad things happen routinely. Doctors have the same problem. Unfortunately, accidents do happen, mistakes occur, and everyone who goes to the doctor expects to come out unharmed and alive. And when that doesn't happen, juries are very happy to award very large settlements, or I'm sorry, very large verdicts against uh, even the most sympathetic defendants. So captive insurance has been delivering a material value to the healthcare industry because the cost of insurance is radically more than most other industries. And I always talk about commercial trucking as kind of our sister industry because it's the only other area that I've seen that is so largely defined by the cost of insurance. And once again, there's good reasons for that. If you have a, um, you know, a large commercial truck with a trailer behind it, jackknifes on the road, a whole bunch of people are killed. Number one, everyone is scared of that. So when the jury sees that's what happened, they're going to be very quick to award a whole bunch of money to the plaintiff. And very frequently, they'll award seven-figure judgments because, or verdicts because more than one person dies. I mean, if you have a couple of cars or uh, a car with you know more than one passenger, that, that can add up very quickly. And you got to think about it the way the jury sees it. When the jury gets to the part where they're actually awarding money, they award it per plaintiff and then they award it per count. 
So if I bring a uh, very simple example here, a complaint with two counts, one for wrongful death and then one for some uh, loss of consortium, and then I have two plaintiffs, that means that you now have four lines for the jury to fill in. So it's not like the juries. Okay, so when people talk about runaway juries, they think that these, you know, these redneck or or, or super liberal idiots from nowhere don't know anything about how the real world work are, are given lottery winnings to these totally undeserving plaintiffs, and nothing could be further from the truth. What actually happens is you're dealing with. 12 people, let's go back to my example, they're now staring at four lines. And let's assume for the sake of argument, the plaintiff's attorney has done a good job. We have now seen duty breach causation and damages. So the jury's got to say, all right, what are you going to put in for line number one? We know we need to put in a number. I don't know. How's a quarter million dollars sound? I don't know. It's a little light. It was a kid who got killed. I don't know. How about half a million? Okay, half a million is reasonable. It's a kid. And then lost a consortium. Well, that's valuable. I mean, the parents love their kid, right? I don't know. Like, quarter million. Ah, all of a sudden you're at $750,000 and we haven't even gotten to plaintiff number two. So that's how these things get very large. And a similar analysis is true for virtually all litigation. That's how it works. So when you see these shock verdicts of, oh, we had a $20 million verdict. All right. Well, yes, that is shocking, but it's not necessarily just crazy juries. Oftentimes there's a lot of nuance behind that. And, and these things should never happen with a captive insurance company. First and foremost, if you're staring at a $1.5 or $2 million verdict, that should have settled a long time ago. Second, and, and this is actually just a little bit of a, a truth in the industry, when you see the really big verdicts, the ones where the insurance brokers say, how could you possibly have less than some unreasonable amount of insurance limits? Didn't you see the $20 million verdict? Yeah, I did. But didn't you see that the defense attorneys actually got hit with discovery sanctions because they lied or they otherwise had some material failure in litigation? You see, what people don't realize is that malpractice can drive a lot of these things that you see. I just saw a verdict coming out of Sacramento. I happen to know some of the people involved with litigation. And the expert witness in that case wasn't aware that there was a rebuttal expert witness report and there were some discovery problems where certain evidence which would always be excluded from the jury was allowed in purely because of just a systemic series of failures on the part of the defense attorneys. So yeah, it turns out if you don't defend a case very well or you make boneheaded errors, yeah, a $500,000 case can turn into a $20 million case. We've actually seen some surprising trends in professional liability for attorneys. <laughs> so, all right, thanks for that. So what is the most impactful captive insurance trend of 2023, in your opinion, Matthew? I think the most impactful trend is that they're back in the news, and it's, it's once again a real part of the song and dance. When commercial rates are unreasonably cheap, it is difficult to get the captive insurance solution to really shine because ultimately a CEO will have to be convinced that allocating a good amount of money toward a captive, collateralizing it, and potentially spending more in a soft market, uh, you got to convince them that's a good idea. Now, that, that's a much easier sell right now because we're in still a period of hard market. Uh, but the hard market's going to end, uh, you know, in, in some foreseeable time. And in some industries, I think it's arguably already done. So it's good to see captives back 
it's also good to see that captives are being used in programs, being used as reinsurance vehicles. Uh, it helps align incentives with reinsurers. I think that's a very healthy thing, especially as we see the emergence of InsureTech 2.0, which is focused more on risk management than just you know a new whiz bang application or some sort of a rating filer. Uh, that those kinds of InsureTech opportunities are largely out of the market. Where you see InsureTech doing well is you have a materially better system of risk that is being delivered through an insurance solution. And a captive insurance company can help you to uh, collateralize that, that whole thing. Another thing I've been very excited about in the captive insurance industry is just the degree of sophistication that captives have really worked their way into. The 831B area, is once again under attack from the IRS, which is unfortunate. I don't, I don't share uh, the incredible cynicism of the 831B captives that the IRS shares, but there's no doubt that it was a large and un unignorable part of the industry from, as far as I can tell, 2009 through about 2015. And there were just I don't know hundreds or thousands of very simple captives that were slapped together that attracted you know some participants in the industry that just didn't have the real background in commercial insurance to to really survive and now really ever since those 2016-66 it's been a bit of a double-edged sword on the one hand smaller captives that do a good job got sucked into a compliance process that was painful but on the other hand the entire industry is much better off relatively speaking the the aggregate sophistication the the degree of professionalism is just through the roof i mean it's a very very tough place to get into because it requires so many different moving parts to work i mean you have to have a conversion conversant understanding of the basics of insurance accounting reinsurance fronting obviously you have to understand how a captive works the types of captives and need to understand the industry into which you're trying to sell captives like that's that is a relatively rare specimen. And that's been probably the most fun part of going to captive conferences is meeting the hundreds of other professionals who really enjoy working commercial insurance at such a high level. Awesome. So I thought when I was asking about a trend, maybe you might talk about like the Dobbs decision, which I think there's definitely an issue around providing coverage in the healthcare industry around reproductive rights for women now. If you think about captives and the history of it, there was one time when the market almost completely evaporated for doctors delivering babies. And now with the Dobbs decision impacts abortion, I think there's potentially some coverage issues there because it, abortion is illegal. Most insurance policies in the standard market aren't going to cover intentional acts, right? Mm -hmm. So given that as, as a potential example, I was wondering if you could provide me of a very specific example of where forming a captive or having a captive insurance company in the current difficult environment has been a benefit to your clients, right? A very specific example, like how, how has, what have they done that's a real advantage that you know you just you couldn't get in the, the standard commercial market. Bespoke risk management. It's it's been our experience that risk management is viewed cynically by most leadership and is implemented cynically 
by the vast majority of people who purport to be in the, in the industry. And for those who do take risk management seriously, uh, I sincerely apologize. But when we go through commercial markets, the vast majority of underwriters, they ask about risk management, you check the box, and then you're done. What we've done in our captive and through the captive program is develop a very individualized digital approach toward uh, managing the risk inherent in long-term care institutions. It identifies problems, leveraging uh, the, the software that is endemic to the industry. So we are able to aggregate data within our own facilities, review it, and start to take action based off of leading indicators that we've identified. And that that is only really possible because through the captive insurance company, we actually have resources allocated toward risk management. And it's more than just simply saying, pretty please, wear you know, firm gripped shoes so you don't slip all over the place. And that has materially changed the frequency and severity of risk. We have an unreasonably low loss ratio to the point where I, I have to get on the phone routinely with our actuaries and other stakeholders to demonstrate, no, we're, we're not making up numbers. We're just doing really, really well because we know exactly where the plaintiff's attorneys uh, are able to uh, make their money. And we've been plugging those holes way before the medical records ever make their way to the plaintiff's attorneys. And that kind of risk management will never occur from a big box risk manager that comes in there and helps you with your workers' comp. It probably won't even occur from the really good brokerages that have the budget and try their best. Because if you don't really understand, okay, the director, let's just take an example. The director of nursing for this hospital wants to save people, and yet she's not. Okay. I mean, that's that's the problem, right? I mean, or or this surgeon or this other obviously good person who's doing good stuff. No surgeon goes to work saying, I'm going to kill someone today. That's absurd. So we have to assume that bad things are occurring despite their best efforts. Okay. So now, who do you know at an insurance brokerage who has the nuance necessary to say, all right, so what really happens here is, you know, you don't have enough time to be able to do X, Y, and Z, and you're skipping steps or you're, or you're having to cut a corner here just to be able to satisfy this government regulation. You have to be there. You have to be at that degree of specificity, because if what you're doing in risk management is saying, hey, y'all, just a little bit more effort and we'll be safe, that, that'll never work. Assuming that your, your employees are trying their hardest, and in particular in healthcare, I think it's very easy for the for the nurses and the doctors to get on their high horse and say we are doing the best we can nobody becomes a doctor or a nurse unless they want to heal people even the most cynical doctor who's in it for the money is still literally healing people i mean that's just that's an element of the job so identifying the blocks that they have and then undoing those blocks or working your way around it. Because sometimes, you know, I and mean, there's just certain things you have to do, state, local, fed, uh, federal regulators, there's just no way around it. Your solutions need to either reduce their workload or work a way around that workload so that you are not adding a single minute to their day. If you can do that, then your risk management is going to be awesome. And you ain't going to find that unless you have an internal staff that really understands the risk. So when you ask, uh, I guess, to summarize, what's the best thing we've ever done? I'd say bespoke risk management using best-in-class data science. Fantastic. All right, well, let's do the opposite of that kind of, what are some of the biggest mistakes or reason 
you have seen where uh, when someone has or wants to move to a captive insurance company. Right? So they were doing it, but it was a big mistake or the wrong reason. We had a client years ago who had an existing single parent captive. It was writing 250, 750 for GLPL for some form of a, of a healthcare provider. I won't identify what kind. And his healthcare costs were out of control, the benefits side. And we put, we just added a line. You know, he had a bunch of surplus in the captive. The GLPL was rocking and rolling. I think he also had workers' comp. So it's kind of a natural extension. And I don't think we really did a good enough job of second guessing him because he was he was a large client. He just wanted more of his captive. Why would you say no? But in reality, I remember we kind of quietly wondered, like, man, you know, like in a benefits program, we're going to have to cover all these employees plus their spouses and children. We know that his his experience has been eh, kind of not so good. You know, allegedly we can change some things with a wellness program. We had some vendors in mind to change it up. But ultimately, uh, we can't. You, I mean, we couldn't control the health conditions of the spouses and the children, and he just got burned up. I mean, he was in and out of benefits, and my God, I think I think he lasted a full policy year before he said get rid of that money losing endeavor. And um, I, that was probably the last time I really spent a lot of time on employee benefits. The the lesson there, I mean, there's so many lessons from that. Number one. I mean, just because you have a big client doesn't mean you should do whatever they say. We 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 should have given them better counsel. Second, uh, the CEO was looking at the captive as cheap insurance, and yeah, I mean, of course, you get the rate much much lower for uh, for a self-insured healthcare benefits program. But the problem is that those claims were just terrible, and in the healthcare field, not everyone's a surgeon. And this is a, this is another uh, dark side of the the healthcare industry, but the truth is that a significant chunk, I mean a lot, I don't know if it's the majority, but it is a lot of people in healthcare work for minimum wage or near minimum wage, doing less than glamorous jobs, and that unfortunately, people who who are on minimum wage, typically that correlates with a lot of things. I mean, you're going to see a much higher incidence of diabetes. You're going to see a much higher incidence of children who have chronic problems. You're going to see much higher incidence of uh, the, the spouse being on your benefits plan. And it's impolite to point out, but now you're having to pay for the spouse as well. And if you're not prepared for that, you can end up uh, not doing so well. And I don't have a fantastic solution for that. If you've got a population of individuals who are in an area that tends to correlate with a lot of common, very expensive, chronic morbidities, uh, you need to think very long and hard before leveraging a captive just to get cheap insurance. Yeah, sounds like just to get cheap insurance is the wrong reason to do it, right? You have to understand the risks, understand the exposures you're bringing into your captive and make sure that it's a fit and that probably it's a, a longer term fit, right? I don't envy the decision-making process for leadership when it comes to benefits because there are very few examples of premium ever going down. The rate only seems to go up. And all of your solutions are incredibly complicated. And the, the different types of solutions are materially different. 
So a fully insured healthcare plan is completely different from self-insured and self-insured is not the same as a captive. A captive can be a part of a self-insured solution, but really it's not gonna amount to a hill of beans unless you really understand the TPA you got for the for the for the healthcare services, and you got to work with another TPA just for the pharmacy. You got two TPAs. It can really get complicated, and we haven't even started talking about how do you manage surgeries and how do you sit there and, and try to reduce the cost and, and and negotiating with Medicare. The whole concept of a network is like a whole field within healthcare benefits that you have to understand, and if you're not working with a lexicographic knowledge of that stuff, you should probably make a decision. Either you're going to get in it or refer that somewhere else. Matthew, I want to thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom on captives and the current state of the market. And for more topical information like this, you can visit captive.com and sign up for our free newsletter and get the latest white paper, a guide to getting started in captive insurance. Thanks very much, Matthew. Thank you.